You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 16th of September 2019 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View coming up today. Yeah, the same people might vote for him again, but in Israel the margins are important. And if you lose one, two seats, it can make all the difference. Israelis head to the polls again. My guests Yossi Meckelberg and John Everard will look at why Israel is into its second election within six months, with possibly a third to come. Plus, what can we learn from the pen pal relationship between Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un and... The creature is driven by rage and pursued by an investigative reporter. Mr. McGee, don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. Why is Boris Johnson comparing himself to the Incredible Hulk? I'm Andrew Muller. Monocle's House View starts now. And welcome to the show. I'm joined today by Yossi Meckelberg, Professor of International Relations at Regents University, and John Everard, the UK's former ambassador to North Korea, Belarus and Uruguay. And we begin in Israel, which tomorrow votes in yet another election, the second this year. As has recently been traditional with Israeli elections, this is being widely perceived as a referendum on Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who recently overtook David Ben-Gurion as the cumulatively longest-serving occupant of that role, but who was unable to assemble a coalition following the previous election back in April. Netanyahu's principal rival is once again Benny Gantz, a retired general and former chief of staff of the Israeli Defence Forces. Uh, Yossi, is there much reason to expect this election going all that much differently from the last one? The stalemate is there. The stalemate is a reflection of the Israeli society in which won't budge one way or another. They are divided, they are fragmented, and they don't they don't vote in a pragmatic way. So they want exactly what they want. They don't get anything as a result of it, <laughs> but they still, they still will insist to follow the same pattern, which, you know, is almost the definition of insanity. And that's what we got probably tomorrow. You look at the polls and, you know, you know all what you look is at the blocks, 61 or not 61, and Netanyahu now is short and two. For the so-called, because left it is not, but let's call it center-left just for the sake of argument, they need to rely on Arab-Israeli parties. And this is still, unfortunately, a taboo in Israeli politics, but might be something good come out of it. If the right-wing bloc is just under 61, maybe for the first time in Israel history, someone will take a stand and say, no, we can build a center-center-left with coalition with, with the Arab parties. Um, John, as he usually does, Benjamin Netanyahu has very much put himself front and centre. I can't tell myself whether, well, it, clearly it has some electoral strategic, strategic sense in that he's been Prime Minister of Israel a lot longer than I have, but it's not going to win over anybody, is it? There can't be anybody in Israel who by now does not have a fairly fixed, firm opinion on the subject of Benjamin Netanyahu. Absolutely right. And those who are going to vote that way because of Benjamin Netanyahu did so last time, which produced the hung result, which, as, as, as Yossi's pointed out, didn't get it very far. Uh, moreover, uh, 
one of Netanyahu's great electoral cards was that he's the strong man. You know, he he sort of leads from the front and he takes no nonsense, that kind of thing. Having to call a second election with the possibility even of a third election in January hanging over you if this one doesn't produce a result, which is a distinct possibility, doesn't make you look very strong. I suspect, in fact, that his uh, his star is fading a bit and that a lot of the people who might have been attracted to him last time round might be a little less attracted this time. Um, Yossi, his big pre-election stunt this time round was this promise to annex parts of the Jordan Valley uh, should he be returned to power. Um, I guess there's a question in two parts attached to that. One is, is that actually as mad as it sounds? And if the answer to that question is yes, is it something he's actually going to do? Or is this Netanyahu's equivalent of Trump's wall across the Mexico border? Well, what is met today might be reality tomorrow, and that's one of the fear. The world that we live right now, you know, I'd we had this conversation a year, two years ago. So, you know, there are a lot of things in the world right now, Brexit, Trump. So why not annexing? Because this is in the same vein of, of, of madness in, in politics right now. But the point that, that John made about, about Netanyahu and, and his star, I think... It shows desperation, including the annexation. He is so desperate to win because it's not only about his political life. We have to understand this is about his not being in court and probably in jail for corruption. These are the charges still hanging over him? Yes, pending hearing at the beginning of October. So in this sense, he is ready to promise you whatever you like right now, whatever people that vote for him. But again, if he really wanted to annex it, why didn't he annex it before the election? Why say shortly after the election, he could say, you see, I'm a man of my word. I annex it now and vote for me because I'm doing things that you really like. But he promises now, forgets after the election. If you watch his appearances, especially during the weekend on Israeli TV, this looks someone that lost lost, lost his composure. Mm. This is a, a person that was actually manipulated the media, was so actually what is, is strongest one was he knew how to play the media that will play his base. He was just screaming. It was almost hysteria, screaming at, this, at, at, at the presenters one after one. I think that, yeah, the same people might vote for him again, but in Israel, the margins are important. And if you lose one, two seats, it can make all the difference. Yossi Meckelberg and John Everard, thank you both. We're back in just a moment with more from you both. But first, here's Monocle's Ben Ryland with some of the other stories we're following today. Thanks, Andrew. Washington has issued detailed satellite images and cited intelligence to back its claim that Iran was behind this weekend's attacks on oil facilities in Saudi Arabia. Tehran vehemently denies involvement and has accused leaders in the US of deceit. The incident has affected the global supply of oil and pushed up prices. We'll have more on this later in the program. Police in Hong Kong have used tear gas and water cannons to disperse pro-democracy protesters. The city has witnessed considerable violence since attempts to introduce a controversial extradition bill. The plan has since been scrapped, but it's failed to stem protests against Hong Kong's government. And the UK's Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, says he is cautiously optimistic of making progress in Brexit talks. It comes as he holds meetings with the European Commission President Jean-Claude Juncker in Luxembourg. Juncker and negotiators in Brussels do not share Johnson's optimism. That's what's making news. Back to you, Andrew.
Thank you, Ben. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Mullett here with Yossi Meckelberg and John Everard. And let's move on to the apparent resumption of correspondence between US President Donald Trump and North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. It has been revealed that in August, Kim wrote to Trump inviting him to visit Pyongyang. While Trump already holds the distinction of being the first serving president to set foot in North Korea, that was in the form of a brief waddle over the border in the demilitarised zone between North and South Korea. This would be a whole other thing. And it is depressing indeed to contemplate how excited Trump already is about the parades. Uh, John, you spent a lot of time living and working in Pyongyang. They would put on quite a circus for this, wouldn't they? North Korea would put on a huge circus. I mean, this would be uh, this is, would be about as good as it gets for Kim Jong-un. He's already established himself as the first ever North Korean leader to sit down with a serving U.S. president. To persuade a serving U.S. president to visit Pyongyang would just wow his domestic audience, and in particular, wow uh, all the crusty old generals who are starting to get a bit restive about his failure to deliver on things like sanctions relief. So the North Koreans will be pressing very hard. It emerged that... They were pressing very hard for the uh, summit that eventually took place in Singapore to take place in Pyongyang. So this is something they've been pushing for for a while. Is he going to go? A lot of people near the top of the State Department will be throwing themselves across and saying, Mr. President, please, please, just don't do this. Uh, And although he's not known to listen to State Department advice systematically, I think uh, as he gets Uh, closer and closer to the 2020 election, there will be parts of the great Trump brain that will be thinking, is there a downside in this? Am I going to be made a fool of? Are people going to criticise me? Might this backfire? And I suspect that is one of the reasons why we've only learnt about this letter, delivered apparently in late August, only learnt about it now. Just to follow that up, John, um, and I would like you to tap into your recollections of of having attempted to work in in Pyongyang any U.S. presidential visit, of course, is a an enormous uh, security, you know, well, enterprise fiasco, call it what you will. They will have to send advance teams. Everything will need to be organized to the nth detail and so on and so on and so on. How possible is it going to be for an organization like the U.S. Secret Service to operate somewhere like Pyongyang? That is going to be quite the culture shock both ways, isn't it? With your secret service? No, they'll go to lock a house on fire. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, people who go around wearing dark glass with strange bolts under their armpits just get on with each other. <laughs> um, but you think the North Koreans would be willing to let them have the run of the place to do whatever it is they feel like they need to do? If the prize is a visit by a sitting US president, the North Koreans will stretch all kinds of points. Uh, Yossi, does it... Dam- I mean, it's a question that gets asked about Trump a lot uh, in one shape or form, the, the long-term effects that his presidency may end up having on the United States. Is it damaging in the long term to US interests in the world for their president to get so obviously played like this? Well, in a way, sometimes it's good to be an unconformist president and come for something new because we have so much of the old type of diplomacy. So sometimes to break a stalemate, it's ma- but in this case, unless they have an agreement and they can then declare, oh, they stop the nuclear program. They do something big. There is a big move there. Why would you go and as, as, as John said, give such a prize to, to someone that its values go anything against what the United States stands for or what, at least most of the United States. It will be, I think, a folly to do that unless he can come back to Washington and say, I got something in return. To give it for free will be a big mistake. 
Because just to, to follow that point up, John, we should, I guess, talk about whether we're being entirely fair on Donald Trump in just assuming he is being played here. But it is clear, I think, by now that this letter inviting him to Pyongyang was sent ahead of North Korea's most recent short-range missile tests. Was that the North Koreans in sending this letter buying themselves cover to conduct the tests? I Possibly, although I think it's more likely that what happened was that they, they sent this letter and didn't get a response and then threw their toys out of the pram or rather threw their missiles out of the launchers. Uh, <laughs> and, and then remember, you know, hours after or rather hours before they, they, they did this test, uh, the Tsong Hui, the, the, the no-nonsense vice foreign minister said, we will sit down and talk provided Americans you capitulate in advance, uh, which is a very North Korean way of doing things, but reinforced the message that from their point of view at least, diplomacy is not yet dead. Whether this comes to anything, of course, we still don't know. Uh, the White House appears to be still chewing it over. Uh, Yossi, throughout this whole curious interaction between Washington, D.C. and Pyongyang, have you perceived any uh, indication at all that the North Koreans are negotiating or acting in good faith, that at some point it is imaginable uh, to North Korea, our listeners cannot see John Everard shaking his head uh, vigorously, but that at some point the North Koreans are actually serious about dismantling their nuclear weapons. I, I did see any. I, 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 com I completely agree with John about it. What have they given in return? Uh, they get, uh, you know, all the goodies, but they give nothing in return. So they had all this publicity. And, you know, Donald Trump make... Uh, Almost, almost respectable. They get all the, the, the positives. Maybe there is a, a man to, to do business with, but in reality, you see it like the launching of the, of, of the missiles, continuing the nuclear program. What is changing uh, domestically in, in, in North Korea? Do we see any opening towards the outside world? Do we see any improvement on human rights? Zero. So, in this sense, don't legitimize someone that probably shouldn't be legitimized in the, in the international community. Well, we'll talk, th talk about that one more uh, when and if it happens. I did want to ask you both uh, about these attacks at the weekend on those oil fields in Saudi Arabia. Uh, John, Iran is denying any responsibility at all. The, the Houthi rebels, who are, of course, backed by Iran in Yemen, are claiming they did it. Is there actually, if we're trying to narrow down the list of suspects, is there anybody it could have been other than either Iran or Iranian proxies? I, it's most unlikely that the drones were Iranian-style drones using North Korean technology. See, the North Korean story leaks over into this one. Uh, and there aren't that many people who are in the habit of flinging things at Saudi Arabia. Uh, so either Iran or the Houthis, just possibly you know, one of the other Iranian proxies, but that, that doesn't really change the geopolitical calculus. Of course, hours ago, uh, the White House has come out with this statement saying, you know, the Houthis don't make us laugh effectively. Uh, they, the, the Houthis have indeed used drones against uh, Saudi targets before, uh, but they keep missing, they keep crashing. Uh, they've only recently acquired longer range drones that might conceivably have conducted Saturday's attacks. Uh, so, uh, moreover, it seems that the drones actually came out of Iraq, uh, not out of Yemen at all. So that if the Houthis were in any way involved in this attack, it must have been under close supervision and with very considerable support from somebody else. The thing that is baffling me thus far about this anyway is if this was Iran directly or Iran at one remove or if there is any amount of Iranian responsibility for these attacks, why would they have done it? Because if you do something like this, if you're not 
actually trying to start a war, you're not trying very hard not to start one. I think it depends. I think there is some Iranian element there, must be, operating such UAVs in in this... Because just to reiterate, this was not a small attack. This was at least 19 different strikes from drones and cruise missiles, and there's some suggestions that um, other projectiles may have missed what they were launched at. Yeah, both the scale and the target suggest that this comes from more than the Houthis. It might come from there, but someone must have been behind it, both technically but also politically. But you have also to look at in Iranian politics. It's not a unified politics. It might be actually the case that someone want to temper with Rouhani meeting Trump next week and want to send the message, don't go and make too many concessions there in, in the UN because there are other forces that operate in Iran and won't let you do that. So you have always to look at the complex Iran. One of the mistakes is done in the West for a very long time is to look, unlike North Korea in this sense, that you know the chain of command much better. In Iran, the chain of command is not very clear. You look at the at Rouhani, you look at the parliament, the majlis. Is it is it the president Rouhani? Is it is it a, 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 the spiritual leader Khamenei? Is it the revolutionary guard? There are enough elements there that might have interest to do that in order to they might might know something that they don't interfere with. But this is very serious. It's as serious as it gets because we are talking about already now cuts by 5% of oil supply. Because, John, this is a significant ratcheting up, isn't it? This is somebody somewhere who is trying to get the kind of response that you would not get by just blowing another hole in the side of an oil tanker in the Strait of Hormuz. Yes, absolutely. This, this is big. I mean, ratcheting oil world, world oil production down by 5% uh, sends a very clear message that whoever is behind this attack uh, is, is serious and can do serious damage, not just to uh, the, the Saudis, though that too, uh, but to the entire world economy and that they therefore uh, deserve a hearing and to be taken uh, and to be seen and received at the highest level. Uh, We still don't know, of course, how long it's going to take the Saudis to repair the damage. Uh, Some people say they can do it in a few days. If it goes beyond that, then the strategic reserves uh, that various countries start to draw down, uh, the US, of course, has already announced this, so has South Korea. I think various other countries have have done so in the last few hours. Uh, They're going to run out fairly soon and uh, we enter a we enter unknown territory what happens when countries actually run out of oil okay. in the winter because okay. the winter is high. also indeed so well let's move finally along on the news panel to brexit for as long as we can stand it in yet another example of the rarefied stratospheres to which the process has elevated the british discourse this week we have been treated to the spectacle of the prime minister of the united kingdom comparing himself to the incredible hulk boris johnson invoked the unjolly green giant as a metaphor for his determination to break free of the european union um Yossi, it's hard to know with Boris Johnson. I've interviewed him at length once and met him socially on a couple of occasions, and his conversation does contain these sort of weird, jumbled references to popular culture, which just sort of seem to leap into his head from somewhere. So is he... Was he saying this deliberately in order to conjure up front pages uh, covered in depictions of the Incredible Hulk, or do you get the sense that he's... He shares that much, at least, with Donald Trump, that things just sort of pop into his head, so he says them. 
Yeah, perhaps that's, I think it's suitable considering what happens in British politics that comes from comics. But, <laughs> but if we, we go beyond this, I think pop culture is fine because it can resonate with a lot of people. But if it replaces actually depth of analysis, then we are in big trouble. And yeah, you can give this kind of shortcut of, you know, I'm this giant and I can do that and I break free of Europe. Just again, everything right now, as you say, is about consolidating the base. That's what Trump is doing. That's what Netanyahu is doing. That's that's what that's Johnson is doing. But if you look at his politics, he behaves like a novice, not like an hack. Uh, John, do you, do you think the Incredible Hulk is an image which resonates with the conservative heartlands? I think we're looking entirely the wrong place. I walk away from Marvel comics altogether and go for Batman imagery. I think Johnson is a reincarnation of Egghead, the one who goes around snickering and sniveling at all his clothes, but always gets locked up in the end. Um, I, I, do, I do want to ask you both just before we go, because it is the question I have been regularly uh, asking to our news panellists in order to commit themselves to hostages to fortune, uh, which is about what's actually going to happen at the next given Brexit deadline. Um, I'll ask you each in turn, and a brief answer from each of you. Yossi, on November the 1st, which is coming up, uh, do you anticipate that the UK will still be in the EU, or will by hook or by crook or by hulk actually be out? I just hope you won't play back the recording <laughs> when I say oh, what we're, I'm we're keeping them all. <laughs> but I think that, we'll... They'll get a big laugh at the Christmas party. <laughs> I still, we'll still be in Europe. Way beyond 1st of November. John, what do you think at yes, this point? Yes, I agree with Yossi. I, I, I mean, for all the incredible Holt's fantastic powers, I, I, I just don't see the mechanism delivering an exit, especially with the law that was passed last week uh, tying his hands. I suspect 1st November will still be most of the European Union. John Everard and Yossi Meckelberg, thank you both. In a moment, Monocle's Robert Bound on architecture. You're listening to The House View. Do stay tuned. Join Marco Sippi for the menu, bringing you Monocle 24's recipe for the best in drinking and dining. We make entertaining a doddle. It's incredibly easy to make. With expert opinions. You can use fish fillets, which you grill in the oven or pan fry. A bit of seasoning. Lots of lime, a lot of cracked pepper, and a bit of good olive oil. And plenty of spice. And then you cook it in caraway and seven spice, as well as something sweet. Then you take a big pot of mascarpone and spoon it into your egg yolk. And maybe even a little bit nuts. You take it out, you top it with some pine nuts and you're good to go. It's a recipe that's guaranteed to impress. It's slightly controversial, but it's the one thing that has surprised the most people when they eat it. Premiering live on Monocle 24 every Friday at 2000 London time, midday in Los Angeles, or downloadable wherever you get your podcasts. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller. And finally today, Monocle's senior editor, Robert Bound, takes a magnifying glass to the peculiarities of architectural paperwork. I'm not Monocle's design editor, but I am on the mailing list for many an architecture practice and design PR firm, and I'm glad to read things that aren't my speciality. To look without professional prejudice can be pure pleasure. The buildings, details and finishes are often beautiful, radical, mould-breaking, I'm sure. What gets me, though, is the people. 
not the architects themselves. Imagine, listeners, I mean the people in the architectural renders, the fakes, the cutouts, the stiffs, the supposed cross-section of society that might be hanging out around that new gallery, apartment block, shopping centre. Bruegel's paintings were morality plays awash with characters, and they looked a lot like my inbox. The problem is twofold. Firstly, there's always a dude in a singlet and board shorts, acting suspiciously with a backpack or drinking a can of lager, who's probably supposed to represent, say, ethnic diversity or be a student or be cool or something, but singularly fails to embody an aspiration or archetype besides, where can I score around here? And then there is my imagination. Why is she wearing a woolen hat and mittens when the development is in Bangkok? Does she have a rare illness? Why is the large group of schoolchildren the same size as that postman? He should be in a circus. Are that couple intimately leaning into each other next to a suggestion of woodland workmates? And will they be going for a quickie in that not-yet-dense-enough coppice? I fear for their professional reputations. It's wearying, constantly fantasising about the inner lives of fictional characters dotted in architectural renders, and it significantly detracts from a precise critique of those buildings. I can no longer see a gallery space flooded with natural light. I can only see men who look so normal they clearly work for the FBI. The chorus from a musical, or, hang on, is that Bruce Lee? My prescription is simple, people. No people. For Monocle, I'm Robert Bound. That was Robert Bound, and that is all for today's show. Monocle's House View was produced by Tom Hall. Our studio managers were Kenya Scarlett and David Stevens. Coming up at 2000, a brand new edition of Monocle on Culture. Monocle's House View returns at the same time tomorrow. That's 1800 London time. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening. <laughs>